0: folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. Today we have a really special episode for you. I spent some time chatting with Peter Michael Bauer. If you're not familiar with Peter's work, he's one of the main catalysts in the rewilding movement here in North America. He primarily focuses on the social and environmental impacts of the Neolithic Revolution and how this understanding can provide us with solutions during the current mass extinction we chat a bit about what our role is, especially as white folks here in North America, in trying to balance being more in tune with nature without appropriation. It's a challenging conversation, and it ends up being a two-part episode because of this reason. And before we get into that, I also wanna let you know that on January 28th through the 30th, myself and Peter will be speaking at the annual North American Rewilding Conference, which is an open source conference available on Zoom. So go check out rewilding.com if you'd like to see us both present. So take a listen and let us know what you think. Hey, Peter, thanks for taking some time to chat. For our listeners who might not be aware of your work, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. My name is Peter Michael
1: Bauer. Uh, I call myself a rewilding catalyst And that's just because I've been hopefully inspiring people to do what I call or refer to as rewilding for around 20 years now. And obviously there's a lot of different meanings around the word rewilding now that didn't exist 20 years ago when I started using the word. Um, And so part of my work is in clarifying what that meaning is. And I have a nonprofit that I started called Rewild Portland, and we teach ancestral skills as well as like philosophy, anthropology. We teach uh, reciprocity with plants and growing things kind of like a mixture of traditional ecological knowledge and permaculture and bridging all of these different ideas around resilience as well as obviously working since we're uh, you know i'm a white person living on native land we do a lot of work with different tribes around here with those themes yeah and then i wrote a book when i was in my 20s i had a blog uh under the moniker urban scout and i wrote a book called rewild or die it's basically a a collection of very short essays about rewilding <laughs> it kind of came about because i tried to do this project where i wanted to live like a hunter gatherer in an urban environment and i failed after like a week and i realized that it was going to require a lot of people and not just me there definitely are people out there who have a lot of skill you know you can see them on these shows like alone and stuff like that that have a lot of skill in terms of hunting and gathering and resilience i didn't really have any of those i still don't really have any of those i'm like a collective person at heart I don't I just can't do anything by myself I have to have other people around I'm very social Um, and so I've just started writing these essays as a way of like basically persuading people to join me in at the time what I called a rewilding renaissance and then after a couple years put it all together into a book went on a book tour started rewild Portland yeah just been doing that ever since
0: cool yeah uh
1: your name comes up
0: whenever the word rewilding comes up so you're doing something right (laughs)
1: Well, I do own the domain rewilding.com and rewild.com. So even though there's no trademark on the word, I'll probably still be able to at least have some sort of influence over it (laughs) or rewild Portland
0: does anyway. Yeah. Yeah, And that, that whole term rewilding has been commodified in a lot of ways and it's used pretty generously. Anything from sport hunting to foraging for basic things to in some cases, even like destruction of land practices because of the idea that humans shouldn't be involved and let invasives come in and just do whatever they want totally so there's like this this is really wide net that rewilding kind of falls under so for you personally how does that exist and I, as I know you've talked in the past about how your understanding of rewilding has evolved but I guess where it stands today given our current global context you know with climate change and covid and all of these things and how that again, kind of circles back into this idea of anarchism.
1: Yeah. So in order to understand why I have the perception of rewilding that I do today, I kind of have to talk about where it came from and how I came to it uh, originally. So from my understanding, what I've been able to trace uh, back is that the term rewilding was coined by a man named Jesse Wolf Hardin in a 1985 essay called The Rewilding. And he was a, an activist in Earth First, and apparently they might have published it in Earth First Journal or it was published in a paper in Eugene or something along those lines. And so it became part of the anarcho-primitivist milieu in Eugene in the 90s. And from there, actually, it's it's split because Dave Foreman, who was one of the founders of Earth First, was kicked out for his conservative beliefs. And he ended up either co-opting the term or maybe it was a, a case of cryptomnesia where he started using it um to describe a type of conservation in a classical sense of conservation where you know and when i say classical i mean i don't know if civilized is the word i want to use either but uh the perception that humans are innately flawed and that uh, a wild environment means humanless a barrier yeah yeah so in in and, and it took off right because He wrote a book called Rewilding the West, I believe. And the idea that rewilding meant conservation by removal of people and letting things quote-unquote go wild was already sort of in the, the zeitgeist of the American perceptions of the environment based on the romantic notions of wilderness. And from there, it actually got picked up more so in Europe and became super popular in Europe. And I think it's in part because there isn't a lot of wild space left in Europe. And so in terms of thinking about biodiversity, if you're from an agriculturalist society that obliterates biodiversity by your subsistence strategy, then of course, anything outside of the way you interact with the land is gonna be considered more ecologically sound than the extractive, destructive process of irrigation-based agriculture. So if you have that and the only biodiverse places that are left are the places without humans. It makes sense to jump to that conclusion that in order to keep a place, quote unquote, wild, it has to have no humans in it. And so that just like blew up in Europe over the last like decade, you know, um, with books by George Monboyo and others and now there's just loads of this you know it's funny cuz i do these classes of rewilding 101 and i've been because of the pandemic i've been doing them for folks in in europe and in ireland there's actually you go to the country there's actually signs that are circles with slashes through them that say rewilding because there rewilding is like eminent domain stealing their land of you know farmland and shepherd land in order to turn it into like an eco tourist trap Right. And so instead of recognizing that it could be a transformation to a resilient relationship between humans and their environments, it's removing humans and in in particular, these like farmers and shepherds. So it's kind of interesting there. There's that going on. Whereas then in the United States, it's a colonial state. I mean, so is Ireland. So is everywhere, essentially. But in the sense that there are indigenous populations here, you have the conservation rewilders coming in and essentially not recognizing the people who've been living in those places in the so-called wild environments for thousands and thousands of thousands of years, right? And so then you're removing those people too, which is absurd and racist and colonial. It's just essentially a colonialism or just, you know, colonialism <laughs> continued. So that's the sort of the darker side of the word rewilding that has continued that thread. Meanwhile, there's this other thread of rewilding, which is the one that I'm a part of, and I found the word rewilding in the magazine Green Anarchy in 2004, I believe. They put out an issue. Again, this is sort of that same milieu that the conservation one came out of, but this one continued the original intention behind Jesse Wolfharden's article, The Rewilding from the 1980s. I also just want to throw out there that even though there's a word for rewilding now, that everything is constantly rewilding everything is and has been since the beginning of the process of domestication so just because we're using this word to describe it doesn't mean it didn't
0: exist before the word right yeah I would say like domestication is almost like a force against another natural force when we imagine it being static it's just that those two forces are equally pushing against one another
1: yeah in terms of biology there's mutualism which is you know plants or animals in a relationship where they both benefit from it. And to me, domestication is power over. It's sort of, well, I'll get into the etymology of domestication in a second, but in terms of wildness, so I found rewilding through anarcho-primitivism. And anarcho-primitivism is basically just, if we look at the definition of anarchy as just stateless societies, human societies before they had states, I think statists, people who grow up in civilization, They conflate the culture of civilization with the word society. So oftentimes I hear people say like, oh, well, like the Bushman civilization. It's like, no, the Bushmen don't have a civilization. They have a society, but they don't have a civilization. A civilization is a very specific kind of society. And if you look at just the basic dictionary definition, the two things that stick out the most are complex social organization, which is basically just means hierarchy it's a different way of saying hierarchy complexity and then advancements in the arts such as writing so if your culture doesn't have writing you're technically not a civilization Um, you still have you could be a civil society in fact i think civilization is the least civil society the irony of its own name right but of course it's a colonial society and so they Uh, it's (laughs) self-aggrandizing to call it civilization as if it's a civil society when in fact it is not. So anarcho-primitivism is looking at stateless societies. So all of the people who have existed and anarchy just means stateless people. So, you know, the Bushmen, if you were to be like, are you anarchists? They would be like, what the hell are you talking about? But they're a stateless society. So by definition, they live in anarchy. If you look at it just on a base level like that, and we look at what's, the entirety of our human time on the planet, there's this interesting concept called um, it's basically it's kind of the basis of, of rewilding in a sense, the environment of evolutionary adaptation. So what are humans? What are we adapted to? And in order to understand what we're adapted to, we have to understand what our evolutionary history looked like. So, you know, a lot of this comes to a fruition in the contemporary world in things like the Paleolithic diet, which, you know, again, a sort of one of those things that had originally um, interesting scientific things and then got when anything becomes mainstream and then you have like Paleolithic candy bars at the grocery <laughs> store, you're like, no, yeah right <laughs> that's not what this was. Um, what the Paleolithic diet was, was essentially scientists looking at the history of human evolution and, and hypothesizing what we're best adapted to. And then trial and error with, uh, you know, in terms of dietary nutrition or dietary principles. You can look at that uh, uh, all the way back for anything. Social organization is, you know, so what what kind of social organization were we adapted to, best adapted to? What were we living in? And if we look at that and we think, well, for the majority of our history, humans lived in anarchy. So we are actually most well adapted to anarchy. You could go down the rabbit hole of what all of that can mean. But essentially, anarcho-primitivism is saying The most actual genuine form of anarchy was the prehistoric one, was the one before um, we had a word to describe what anarchy was, because that was just what people did, right? There was no such thing as a state. So you didn't have states and stateless societies. You just had societies or cultures of people. So rewilding was in a sense kind of like doing (laughs) anarcho-primitivism or like creating a framework to transition, using that idea to transition to that kind of society. But there's so much more that goes into all of that. And part of it is an exploration of the term wildness, because we think of wild and we think of it as some people hear it as a pejorative. Some people hear of it as a sort of romanticization. So you have like the phrase, you know, wild and crazy, which is the pejorative of it. And then you have the romanticization, which is uh, wild and free. Right, and, but if we look at the etymology it it just basically means forest. But if you look at its contrast, what it's contrasted with, which is you know being domesticated, it's a lot easier to understand what wildness means, even if it's not the actual etymological history of the word wild, if you think about it as willed and domestication is the process of breaking the will, then it makes a lot more sense in terms of that form of relationship, right? So a willed relationship is potentially more of a mutualistic one. And a domesticated one is the breaking of will. Like we say, we're breaking a horse, right? What does that mean to break? What is being broken when you break a horse? It's their will. It's their autonomy. It's their spirit. And so domestication is essentially potentially mutualistic relationship gone awry <laughs> and there's a book that gets on my nerves it's called the domestication gone wild and it it's by anthropologists not biologists and so the, i don't think they have the word for mutualism because throughout the book they're constantly conflating domestication with just any relationship between humans and other than humans where they're altered in some way sure right but we have like multi-species connections and multi-species mutualism where everything is being changed by that relationship. And that's just going to happen anytime any species are interacting with each other. They're going to change each other, right? Whereas domestication is a very specific kind of relationship. And if we were to use human on human words to describe the relationship, it would be very clear what kind of relationship that is. Uh, With animals, for example, we call it selective breeding or even forced copulation, If we were to use those words with humans, it would be sexual assault and rape, and so it becomes obvious when you start to use that language what kind of relationship domestication is. It's a non-consensual one. That's not to say that there isn't like a gray area between mutualism and domestication where one species might benefit more than another, or there might be between two people. There's oftentimes confusion between when it comes to consent. Some people don't understand if they had it or not. So there's definitely an area for for confusion and mistakes to be made in regards to those relationships. So it's not like a full on binary in that sense, but it's pretty obvious when it's just straight up one thing or the other. And the word domestication comes from, uh, the etymological root of it is dom, which means house. And that's because during the Neolithic, when people started living in sedentary stone roundhouses, they were bringing their animals inside at night for protection so they're bringing them in the house so domestication is to be of the house to make something of the house and we think of domination it's the same root yeah or dominion you know it's all about being lord master of the house and the house is controlled by you know the human person yeah yeah so that's kind of how i look at it now you know i originally in 2006 i synthesized the definition of rewilding that because there wasn't one out there. There were maybe a dozen, but you know, the one, there was one on greenanarchy.info, which I don't think that website exists anymore. And it was like three paragraphs defining what rewilding was. And then there was another one on rewild.org, which doesn't exist anymore. And that was created by the Wild Roots Collective people. And I took the definition, synthesized it, put it on a splash page for rewild.info, which was a online forum that I started, which its heyday was probably 2007 to 2009. But that definition now exists Pretty much everywhere. Like if you were to look up rewilding, it's going to be that or yeah. a slight variation of that, including um, Miles Olson's book "Unlearn Rewild," which was uh, published by New Society in, in 2012. He used my definition and. It's on the Wikipedia page and stuff like that. (laughs) So it's funny because I don't fully subscribe to that definition, which was to return to a more natural or wild state, the process of undoing domestication. I would go back and change it to the process of embracing wildness, not undoing domestication. Because if you try to undo domestication, then you're going for a specific notion of what you think wildness is, but wildness is an amorphous, constantly changing relationship. And so, if you start to try to undo domestication, by the time you got, to, if you were to think I'm finally undomesticated, you would just be domesticated in a
0: different way. Yeah, right. It's this idea that wildness is a static thing that we can return to, versus this exactly. evolving thing that is based in place and time. Exactly, which you can't can't go back in time, so you can't go back, you totally. can't go back. Which yes. I think gets a little bit lost and is a, is a subtle nuance, but really important when we talk about these things, and I think it's a a piece that, especially on the left, whether it's in anarchist circles or not, sometimes we forget that place and time component. Totally. So, like, with, with that framed up, rewilding has become kind of this cultural thing, especially during COVID, where people have realized, like, some of the shortfalls of the world we live in, especially with, like, food supply chains and things like that. And folks have started to really get into this mindset of, how do I make myself more resilient? How do I make my community more resilient? Which I think all come from really good places, but also kind of walk this tightrope in what I think is some really dangerous and without the right framework can be more damaging than helpful to whether it's the rewilding movement or just the planet as a whole. So, you know, one of the things that I see a lot of and is becoming really popular today is that folks are trying to replace things with natural alternatives so the idea of okay you don't want to hoard toilet paper what leaves can, you know what trees can you like go harvest leaves from right. or whatever yeah, like foraging yeah. is just becoming a, a big thing which in a way is a really great thing it's reconnecting people with their natural environment around them but at the same time we're not shrinking or reducing our consumption based thought processes So we're not changing the fact that we're thinking about, I'm not reducing my consumption. I'm just changing that platform. I'm giving it a greener face. I was just wondering, as somebody that spends a lot of time teaching this stuff, is this something you see happening out in the real world? Or is this more like an internet fad that doesn't make its way to like the actual on the ground action? And if so, what kind of remedies do you see to this kind of activity? Yeah, that's a great question.
1: Yes. I mean, there. so there's multiple facets of this, right? There's the people who are doing it kind of performatively on Instagram or whatever as like a way of, you know, look at my beautiful life or I'm foraging for nettles in the springtime in my beautiful basket. And, you know, um, follow me and yada, yada. And then there's people that are like the capitalist mindsets that are selling products like deer antler velvet extract for boners or something, you know, for, 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 um impotency. Oddly specific. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. So, you know, I mean it's just fascinating to kind of look at this. But the main missing component there is that as any as any movement gets larger, people are constantly trying to frame it around something they already understand, right? Something that already has a an image in their mind. And so oftentimes we think of like so-called primitive skills or the ancestral skills movement people now conflate that with rewilding. And that's super frustrating to me. But it's like they want to just like, oh, what's this rewilding thing? Oh, it's just another word for like ancestral skills. Oh, it's just another word for foraging. Oh, and so they can just continue to do these things without actually understanding that rewilding is this larger context. It's a framework for a regenerative life of reciprocity. This is a a huge constant battle. It's essentially like an information war. You know, I hate to use the word war, but it's like civilization is constantly trying to maintain its legitimacy and it does so with ideas and so we are actually at it there is an ideological war that's going on that is trying to suppress a lot of these ideas of reciprocity of freedom outside of the state and so when you have something like rewilding come up it's going to be co-opted it's going to be uh transformed into things that already exist, right? So the capitalist framework already exists. So how do capitalists make money
0: off of this new word, this new buzzword called rewilding? Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together we can build a better future. I think of like Slava Zizek quote that's like, I think it was when he was at Occupy Wall Street and he says, we can imagine the end of the world but we can't imagine the end of capitalism. That kind of play is what I imagine when like I think about these people just being like, yeah, we're going to go have to go forage everything but like, (laughs) there's no thought about like, okay, and then what? Like there's a little bit more to it. Exactly. Totally. There's an
1: anecdotal story that I tell around uh, foraging in particular. And, and foraging to me, you know, the majority of books on foraging out there are simply written from a position of extraction. And every plant book, there's only one book that I know of and that I celebrate now and actually recommend that is about foraging, in particular foraging in the, in the Pacific Northwest. But every book on foraging just tells you if something is edible or not and how to eat it. It doesn't tell you how to propagate it. It doesn't tell you how to harvest it in a reciprocal fashion. It doesn't tell you how to continue the life of the species that you're disrupting. And that is the mistake. And that is where you know this concept of foraging is just an age-old concept of extraction without any reciprocity. And it makes me think of uh, essentially it's entitlement. As an animal, I'm entitled to just take whatever I want and I don't have to really consider the management of these species. The best example that I have of this is Rewild Portland, you know, when we first started, we were basically just a bunch of anarchists hanging out in the public parks of Portland teaching skills for free. And because we weren't getting permits or anything, we couldn't advertise. And we basically just had like a little teeny wooden sign with a stencil of the raccoon spray painted on it. And it was like a sort of speakeasy, like if you knew, you knew what was going on. <laughs> there was no words or anything, you know. And eventually like this guy came and started coming and turned out that he actually worked for Portland parks <laughs> and, and um, he hired me to teach an English Ivy basket class. It was one of the first ones I ever taught to the um, teenagers there who pull Ivy all summer in the parks. And during that basket class, some of the other educators there were like, um, so we hear that you teach free classes every Saturday in the park. Like, what's up with that? You know, and we were like, oh, uh, you know, I'm like sweating and <laughs> pulling my collar. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess uh, you know, like, How come we don't know about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, how come we don't know about this? And I was like, well, we don't get permits, you know, and they were like, oh, well, we'll sponsor you and we'll just send our staff there as staff training so you don't have to pay for the permits. And so that, like, totally transformed us and gave us the ability to actually start getting um, being able to market it and bring in more folks. Well, the first thing that then happens when you start to partner with an institution like the state is that now they can tell us, they, they control what we can and cannot teach. And um, one of the things that we wanted to teach was how to eat stinging nettle. And they said, no, pick something else. And I said, well, wait, hold on. Why not? Why is it an immediate no? And they were like, well, let me find out. So they go and they're like, they talk to the biologists. The biologists send us this whole paper that they had done about how overforaging of stinging nettle in the Portland area had caused the Admiral butterfly population to decline massively. So they didn't want people to continue to forage nettles or overforage them. I had never heard that before. I didn't know that there was this interesting relationship with Admiral butterflies where they lay their eggs on the emerging nettles in the springtime and then they hatch and eat part of the nettle and then turn into butterflies or whatever, however whatever their life cycle is that relies on those spring nettles i'd never heard that no idea that that was a thing and i had been foraging so i was probably partly responsible for (laughs) that foraging right for the decline of the admiral butterfly and so i i started thinking about it and i was like okay there's a solution to this we still want to teach nettles how do we do this so i came up with a plan and i approached them and i was like okay here's the thing we are connected to foragers right like part of rewilding is this this concept of wild foods and and foraging for them But we want to do so in a respectful and reciprocal way. I didn't understand this relationship existed, and I bet 99% of the public doesn't know this. And you're not teaching this to the public. We have a direct connection to the people who need to learn this information, right? They need to know that there's this mutualistic relationship that's being affected by the disturbance of overforaging. So what if we still teach this class? What if we teach it at the park where we wanted to teach it, where there's loads of nettle? We teach it, but we don't harvest anything in the class. We go outside city limits where nettles growing like a weed in different wild places. We harvest it there. We prepare some dishes. We bring it to that spot. We can also transplant a bunch and give away baby nettles to everybody who shows up to the event. And that way, they're not just they're going to either be gardening with native plants and growing nettles in their yard which could stop them from harvesting from somewhere else and encourage, if they don't end up harvesting them, more habitat for these butterflies. And they were basically like, wow, that's awesome, yes. And so we've been doing that, I mean, it's been eight years, right? And we've taught that class every single year. And the people who come to our classes are people who are into foraging and um, either for wild food or for medicine. And now it's just like in the zeitgeist of foragers in Portland that there's this relationship between butterflies and stinging nettle and how to go about doing that. And so we took that idea and then replicated it to all of the wild food classes that we teach. So how do you restore, maintain the species that you're harvesting? So it's not an extractive relationship, but one of reciprocity, you know, and we teach acorn processing. And at one point in time, acorns were the staple starch food in the Willamette Valley where I live. And it was managed here by Kalapuya people and Chinook people and others. Now there's only like 1% or less than 1% of the oak savanna left. So when we teach acorn processing, not only do we include all of that information, but we have like baby oak trees for people to go out and plant, or we just give them handfuls of acorns and we're like, go plant these anywhere, (laughs) you know. So there's just kind of like a different relationship to foraging, but we also developed a whole set of foraging ethics that are pretty extensive that go beyond a lot of the classic ones. So when we teach wild foods every single time, not only do we teach the specific ways in which we need to interact with the specific plant that we're teaching about, but in a general sense, we go through the extensive list of foraging ethics or what we call foraging ethics every time we do. And I don't know if you're interested in hearing those, but (laughs) I have, I pulled up the curriculum for that. I definitely want
0: to talk about it, but, um, (laughs) I've already been going for a bit and I'm like, oh, you know what? We'll make this a two-parter. Go for it. (laughs) Okay. Awesome.
1: Yeah. I really, I think this is one of the things that's important to share with people because it's central to the worldview of rewilding. So rewilding isn't foraging. Rewilding is not going back to who we were but coming home to who we are it's going back to a relationship that we had that we lost it's not going back to a specific kind of thing but it is going back to a collaborative relationship of reciprocity and so this is kind of like this example of foraging ethics is how to look at foraging through the lens of rewilding and think about all of the ways in which we can be In reciprocity with the land. And what that really means to me is looking at how much disturbance we're creating and how much regeneration we're creating. So, how can we minimize our disturbance and maximize our regeneration or the regeneration of the things that we harvest? So, you know, in terms of like classical foraging ethics, you have like take only what you need, right? That's an interesting ethic. Take only what you need. And there's this idea of like sometimes you'll hear a percentage take only 20% of a landscape. That's okay when you have a traditional society that lives in a place that everybody knows and everybody's sort of managing and has really good observational skills. But like, say you have a park in Portland, and I'm a forager, and I'm following the foraging ethics, and I feel great about it, and I go there, and I take 20% of the nettles that I see. And I did it. I followed the ethics, and then I leave. And then 10 minutes later, another forager shows up, and they take 20% of the nettles that they see and so forth and so forth and so forth and eventually every time it's just reducing the population of that right so it's not just about this only take a percentage it's also about what are you giving back how are you planting back nettles and also being able to observe um, and manage those populations collectively another one is use what you harvest that's a classic one um you know i i say what that means is plan ahead A lot of people get excited when they get into foraging, they'll go out and over harvest stuff, they bring it home and then they didn't realize how much time and energy it was gonna take to process those plants. (laughs) I I, recently, uh, there were a bunch of people ragging on this idea that immediate return hunter-gatherer societies only work two to three hours a day to get their food. And it's because most people don't actually understand what that meant. What that meant was just food acquisition. So in terms of acquiring your food, Marshall Salins, Richard Lee and these others who studied with the Bushmen found that the Bushmen in Africa only had to work two to three hours a day to get the food that they needed. That doesn't include weaving baskets. It doesn't include making bows and arrows. It doesn't include processing and cooking the food. All it meant was acquisition. And when they compared that to neighboring agricultural societies, what they saw was eight to 12 hours, which is like where the eight to 12 hour workday comes from where we go to work, but then we come home and we still have to prepare our food, mend our clothing and these other things, right? Until specialization But this idea of food acquisition just by itself. So in terms of planning ahead, people don't plan ahead. They don't go and get, they don't understand, like processing acorns, for example, like, wow. Takes forever. (laughs) Yeah, it could take me a half an hour to get enough acorns for like a week. But then processing those acorns is going to take hours, right? Yeah. You know, like I, I read a statistic, I think it was in the book Tending the Wild, that California native people, northern California, could gather enough acorns in two weeks to last over a year. So think about that, but then the amount of processing. Yeah. If you've ever seen the granary baskets, like they their granaries were woven baskets, huge baskets, um, that they would fill with acorns. And we're ta- and when I say huge, I mean, you could fit like multiple human bodies in there. There's some amazing... If you look at there's a book called It Will Live Forever about uh, by a native woman about acorns and acorn processing. I think there's some pictures of the acorn granary baskets in there. They're just amazing. So just in terms of planning ahead, you know, like this this thing of not letting the food go to waste, so kind of getting into it more slowly and not letting the food go to waste, you know. And then another classic one is leave it alone. So those are the three, like take only what you need, use what you harvest or plan ahead and leave it alone, which is you get there and you're like, you know what, this patch is pretty small or I've got enough food. I want to leave this for the other animals and plants that are out here. Those are kind of the three original ones.
0: Yeah. So don't look in my fridge. I've got like three pounds of choke berries right now that I'm like, I got to go do something with those. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny with acorns. It's like, well, the squirrels will eat them regardless. (laughs) You know, if if they get a little moldy, I know I can dump them outside and the squirrels are still going to eat them. But, you know, it's just a thing. That's why having a chest freezer is good too, because you can always throw things like berries in a chest freezer or or even acorns or nuts and stuff like that roadkill i'm constantly throwing roadkill in my freezer because i'm like i don't want to deal with this right (laughs) now Uh, which is not actually great because then the the intestines and stuff still continue to sort of ferment in a body and they can spoil the meat and then it's really challenging to actually skin an animal once it's been frozen like that easier to do when they're still warm and fresh but anyway (laughs) yeah um (laughs) and then there's more contemporary ones that are informed in part just by things like indigenous people's perspectives on things you know greeting and talking and singing and praying to the things that you're foraging or the plants that you're foraging is a way of connecting with them on a deeper psychological and sort of spiritual level. A lot of people don't necessarily do that. I just like to be in a state of gratitude while I'm doing it and be saying thank you. And that's just sort of a another perspective
0: on it. Before you go to the next one, I do want to talk yeah. about that a little bit because I feel like for a lot of folks it's hard to not feel like like you're pretending to do like to build those relationships mm. with mm. the um, the local ecology and like giving thanks. Like it feels a little bit like colonizing in some ways because of the fact that it's like these aren't my practices and I'm doing it because I feel like I should, but also I feel kind of
1: yeah. I think if you're copying a particular tribe or something, then it's more problematic along those lines. But everyone, you know. Animism is the base relationship, uh, perception, perceptive relationship of, of connection and kinship among all societies. So, or prior to uh, the sort of inanimism and alienation that happens with the longer you're uh, living in a domesticated environment. So, just living in gratitude isn't a form of appropriation in any way. It's something that everybody, it's everyone's relational context. I am fluent in Chinook wawa which is the indigenous trade language of the northwest and from the classes that i've been to i've been told by the folks there specifically that i should talk to the plants in that language when i'm harvesting them and i don't go out and advertise that uh because i live in relationship with the language community while it's not necessarily my language and it's not really anybody's language per se it was a trade language so it was spoken by everybody who came here i think appropriation and that feeling of like am i doing the right thing am i a part of this is something that happens initially and then the more you build those relationships the deeper the relationship gets the more you recognize that you're a part of that bigger system if that makes sense so yeah this comes up too in in talking about cultural appropriation specifically because you know, people say, oh, you need to get permission to do that. But permission is actually a very it, it doesn't make sense when you start to go down the rabbit hole of what that means. Does, does that mean permission from one native person? Does that mean permission from a tribe? Does that mean permission from the tribal bureaucracy that was created by the U.S. government? What does that mean to get permission? And if you get permission from one person, does that mean you have permission from the whole tribe? Right. Does, does that, <laughs> so and, and you never will. That's the thing about permission. You're never going to have permission from everybody to do the thing yeah, the right permission right the the and thats so that's just like a a non starter basically um it sounds great in theory and it's important to so what people mean i think when they say permission is not permission like yes I've been ordained by the the state of you know chinook peoples to be able to do this by their you know but rather that I'm living in relation with those people that like i have made the effort, the commitment to be in relation and try to live in reciprocity with the people and the place. And when you live in a community, not everybody likes you. <laughs> right. So, like, I go to language class, I go to the, you know, and not everybody there likes me. And that's okay because there are people there who love me, who are like, Peter, we want you to keep coming. We love you. You need, you're like so great at helping us with this and that. And thank you for doing this. And, um you know yada 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 and then there's people that are like peter you know whispering peter's an appropriator uh you know <laughs> blah 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 this and that and the other thing colonizer etc and and it's all true in a sense from different perspectives right and so it's it's not about um getting permission. uh, It's about living in relationship to. And when you live in relationship to, there's complexity and there's going to be contradictions. And you have to embrace the complexity and the contradictions that people there are going to dislike you and people there are going to like you. And if the people who disliked me made me go away, then I would lose that reciprocity that I have with other people. And so you have to be willing to be hated (laughs) or just disliked, you know, in order to be in community, to be in reciprocity, you have to have that willingness, and it's hard for a lot of people right because if you if you get hated on you think maybe you're a bad person and I'm not a bad person
0: yeah I'm not and i I think that does play into a lot of the things we see on the internet, especially Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all these things where it's like everything tries to be painted as black and white exactly and and like giving you know um, i'll just because we're talking about this subject like you know indigenous perspective on you know land back or whatever not every indigenous person has the same exact understanding exactly. of what that means and one person doesn't get to speak for all of them totally nor does that mean we get to pick and choose which ones we want to listen to but there's this mu- multiplicity that uh, is much more complicated exactly and i think part of like being anti-racist is like working through those stages of understanding of okay I'm a white person I need to shut like shut my mouth and listen and then also being like oh this person doesn't get to speak for all of these people and also there's no right or wrong answer between these people but it's their dialogue and evolution of what they want Um, and I, I think that's a process that sometimes we see play out live on the internet And um, sometimes it it, because of the the format, the media, uh, it it doesn't really get to where it needs to go. But but we sometimes see those those steps coming out and people get frustrated and confused. But that doesn't mean that we're not trying to move in the right direction. Exactly. Yeah. And I think in particular, uh, you know, on the Internet, anything that happens
1: on the Internet, there's like the more extreme position, the more likes, the more shares, the more like self-righteous indignation comes from it. And so, yeah, it can, if it gets to the extreme of like, kill everyone that isn't from this continent, which I've seen people say it's not realistic and it's not actually going to build a future. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just going to be a, a continuing a conflict and that's just going to happen. That it, That is going to be a reality that there are going to be people who want to continue the conflict. And that's because hurt people hurt people, right?
0: (laughs) So it make it makes sense. You can also get very famous doing that too. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, right, yes. But as you were saying, go ahead. To me, it's about,
1: in terms of thanking plants and and connecting to the what martin Prechtel calls indigeneity or or indigenosity. I think is what he calls it, which is funny. That is innate in everybody without necessarily needing to claim some sort of identity around that cuz that would be weird for white people but one of the things i like to do is research all the threads of of my ancestry um but i don't i don't actually like the idea of doing any of the things that i know of read about you know like contemporary like heathenism or paganism or neo paganism that to me is just like uh well it's complex so i don't you know for me there's a level of appropriation that's happening like just because i have Irish ancestors doesn't mean I have the right to appropriate from Irish ancestral traditions. That's my own personal perspective. I think that this weird concept of hereditary lineage being the thing that gives us permission to do the things is straight up comes out of state level concepts of ownership being hereditary instead of, uh, you know, where a lot of indigenous communities you can get adopted into their communities. And then you're not, you know, technically you can be a part of that. Like there's just a fluidity of culture. And what we have right now is this rigid framework that says the only way that we can have a cultural element is if it was in our ancestry, like we're hereditary. And that's just from property rights. That just literally is taken right out of how the state manages property and how it, you know, hands it down through inheritance.
0: Versus say living memory or something like that.
1: Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, like there's plenty of people who have family ideas like, oh, I'm, I'm Italian, like that's my thing. And then they'd get their genetics tested and they're like barely Italian, right? They're like 1%. And the rest is like, you know, something else. And they're like, wow, it's so weird. I thought I was like fully Italian or whatever. And it's like, this is so complex. So it's great to research your ancestry for ideas. But even paganism and, and these, the relationship of animism doesn't come from the dogmatic practices. It comes from the relationship of being in relation and reciprocity to place, and so people you know, they'll adopt dogmatic practices, but they don't adopt the reciprocity, the practice of reciprocity in their place, right? And that to me, is this sort of weird abstraction of what that relationship is. It's not that i'm uh, that I go outside and I just pray to plants. I mean, that's great. But that's not a relationship of actual reciprocity where my sustenance that goes into my body is literally something that I am tending, a space that I'm tending and getting that sustenance from. So if I'm like praying to the land, but I'm still eating bananas from 3000 miles away. Like that's not, you know, reciprocity, animistic relationship in the place where I live.
0: Yeah, it's it's consumptive as it, 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 we've commodified those that identity into exactly uh, something we can segregate from the rest of our lives and so on and so on.
1: Yeah. And the interesting thing, too, you know, like in old paganism, when you traveled to different lands, every land had different gods. And so you would actually be like praying to the different gods of that place in different shrines. But if you were to be like, well, I'm going to pray to like, you know, I live on Chinook land. If I'm like, if I'm going to pray to the Chinookan gods. People are like, that's appropriation. Also, they didn't necessarily have gods, this concept of gods here, you know, but like so again, it's just this sort of like super complex thing. And I think it's just a matter of living in the, in the complexity of it and embracing the contradictions yeah. and
0: the challenges with it. Yeah, I mean, if we don't, otherwise, there's no way to move forward. Like, there, there's so exactly. many contradic- contradictions that already exist that the idea that we're going to suddenly keep counting is just, it, it's, it's like yeah. looking at our government. Like it, It's just this thing that exists and just like fights itself and is never going anywhere. Like, we're going down this sinking ship and it's just doing nothing. And uh, yeah, that, right, Exactly. Like, uh, that is it, like there's no way if you can't absolve those contradictions by just accepting them, then we're screwed. Totally. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the first half of this interview. In the next episode, we'll be continuing this conversation. To support this project, you can go over to Patreon or poorpros.com to access our social media on various platforms, and of course, support us on iTunes by giving us a review, which increases our odds of getting new, more exciting guests as we continue to grow. This is Andy, and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac.